Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of a Light Into My Path podcast. I am your host, your teacher, Howard Sides. And today, uh, we're beginning chapter 19, uh, but it's ending another great section because the first six verses here of chapter 19 are actually connected to what happens in chapter 18. Uh, it's like a continuation. Although the scene changes, uh, it, it's still basically considered part of that message there. Uh, and the final point that we're in here is the results of the fall. Uh, there were six point uh, sections all in chapter uh, 18. Um, and man, it took a while to write them out. Let's see. Um, under the title, The Great Babylonish City. Okay. Uh, there was the first thing, the revelation of the fall. That was verses 1 and 2, first part of verse 2. Then there's the reasons for the fall, which is the second part of verse 2 and then verse 3. Third, there was the removal from the fall in verses 4 and 5. Then there's the retribution for the fall, verses 6 through 8. The reaction to the fall in verses 9 through 20, which took up most of the chapter. <laughs> and finally, the results of the fall, which is chapter 18, verse 21, down through chapter 19, and verse 6. And that's divided in half, of course, the end of chapter 18 and then the part of 19. We covered in the last podcast, those in chapter 18, which was uh, the Holocaust on earth. The Holocaust on earth. Now today, in chapter 19, verse 1 through 6, we're going to cover uh, the Hallelujahs, in heaven, the hallelujahs in heaven, and with under that title, there are four sections we'll be talking about. Uh, verses one is for the salvation of God. Verses two and three is for the severity of God. Verse four is for the sovereignty of God. And then verses five through six for the supremacy of God. Okay, so uh, let's read our passage here, and then we'll start breaking it down and talking about what's going on. All right, Revelation 19, verse 1. <clears throat> and after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again, they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, in introducing this section, uh, John Wolvord, in his commentary, uh, he says, and I quote, in response to the invitation of chapter 18, verse 20, 
which says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Uh, John next hears a great voice of much people in heaven. Now, the chronological relationship of these experiences is obvious, with the voice in heaven following the destruction of Babylon in all of its forms. The time, therefore, must be just before the second coming of Christ. J. Vernon McGee mentions that chapter 19 marks a dramatic change in the tone of Revelation. The destruction of Babylon, the capital of the beast's kingdom, marks the end of the Great Tribulation. The somber gives way to song. The transfer is from darkness to light, from black to white, from dreary days of judgment to bright days of blessing. This chapter makes a definite bifurcation, which means division, uh, in Revelation, and ushers in the greatest event for this earth, the second coming of Christ. It is the bridge between the Great Tribulation and the Millennium. Okay? All right, so let's get into this um, first section here of our portion of Scripture, and that is in verse 1, for the salvation of God. These are the hallelujahs in heaven that we're talking about. The first one that we see here is for the salvation of God. Uh, and it says there, and after these things, after these things, what things is it talking about? It is at this point that the fifth vial has been poured out. And if you don't remember that, which unless you're really smart, you probably don't. Uh, it's in chapter 16, verse 10. It says, and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So they're in complete darkness. All right? Uh, what other things might it be talking about? It's talking about the events so far that we've seen. Chapter 17 was the destruction of the religious Babylonian system, the cult apostate church system. And then uh, chapter 18, the first portion and the second portion together, uh, descri uh, describes the destruction of the governmental, the political system of Babylon, as well as the actual city itself. All right, so the religious, the governmental, and the actual city itself, all destroyed in these two chapters, 17, 18. So these are the things that, uh, that we're talking about, have already happened. Now, there are some events yet to come. Of course, that would be the pouring out of the sixth vial, uh, which was uh, mentioned back in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. And what takes place there is that the river Euphrates dries up. And then the three unclean spirits gather uh, their army. And that's not good spirits. That's evil spirits it's talking about there. Uh, and also another future event, the pouring out of the seventh vial. Uh, Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21 is where a great earthquake divides Jerusalem into three parts and a great uh, hailstorm brings about uh, a major plague. All right. Okay. Uh, next phrase. I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. Alleluia. And, you know, we hear these words all the time. Alleluia. Amen. Uh, but do you truly and really know exactly what they mean, what those words stand for? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit.
<clears throat> and I think we'll actually get into a little more detail when I get down to the end of verse 4. We'll probably talk about it because amen and hallelujah are used there together. So I think we'll get into it. But here, uh, within this phrase, I heard a great voice of many people in heaven saying hallelujah. Uh, there's two things to point out. One, there's a fourfold cry of rejoicing. And two, there is a sevenfold cry of praising. So you've got a cry of rejoicing and then a cry of praising. So first of all, a fourfold cry of rejoicing uh, is for the first two events that have passed. That would be the destruction of the great whore, the apostate church, the religious system, and then the destruction of Babylon as a whole, the political system and the city itself. Now, what the merchants, the shipmasters, the sailors, and the traders weep and wail and mourn over uh, the fall of Babylon, heaven actually rejoices over. So, the first two cries are rejoicing or for events of the past. The last two cries are for events in the future. Okay? Now, within this cry of praising, we see a sevenfold cry of praising down through this whole portion of scripture, verses 1 through 6. In verse 1, it's over much people in heaven. Uh, verse 4, it talks about the four and twenty elders. Then again in verse 4 is also the four beasts. All of these are ones praising. Verse 5, there's the voice out of the throne. Uh, and then in verse th uh, 6, there's three things. Uh, the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters, and the voice of mighty thunderings. All of these are the sevenfold cries of praising. Now, this hallelujah that we alluded to earlier uh, is a uh, shortened version, if you will, of what we call today hallelujah, where basically we just put an H in front of it, hallelujah or hallelujah. Uh, this word is mentioned 25 times in the Old Testament. And there it means praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, which is a good thing to do. I mean, we should hallelujah all the time, right? Uh, but it's only recorded, believe it or not, four times in the New Testament. And all four of those times are right here in these six verses. That's the only place hallelujah is recorded in the New Testament, right here. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, and four times. Now, the word Hallelujah is a combination of two Hebrew words. Hallel, which means to be clear of sound, but with color. It means to shine or to make a boast, to celebrate. And then, uh, Yah. So it's like Hallelujah and then Yah. Yah is not a contraction of the proper name Jehovah since it sometimes occurs together in a phrase. Yah means he who is, while Yahweh means he who will be, is, and was. Yah implies God experienced as a present help. So, hallelujah basically means praise ye he who is. Praise ye he who is. So, that's what hallelujah means, if you didn't know that. Um, now, the much people that it mentions here, uh, I heard a great voice of much people. 
This much people here represent the martyred saints who had asked God back in chapter 6, How long, O Lord? And God responded in chapter 18, verse 20, Rejoice, for God hath avenged you on her. And then now here we see their reaction. All right. The next phrase, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Okay, so we just mentioned that there's many different groups here praising God. So we raise the question, what exactly are they praising him for? And he mentions it here. First of all, his salvation. In the word salvation, his salvation. Who better to sing God's praises for salvation than the very ones who needed such an action from God. And there's two kinds of salvation. There's a past salvation, and then there's a future salvation. Past salvation for their souls, at this point, are around the throne. Uh, it represents the very last group to experience salvation. These still have not put together the body and the soul yet. The body has not been resurrected, so it's just the soul. But this represents that they were saved in the past because their souls were saved. A future salvation where their bodies, which are yet to be rejected, uh, rejected, resurrected, uh, eventually will be. And we'll see that in uh, chapter uh, 20. Yeah, chapter 20, verse 4 talks about that. So we know their bodies will be uh, resurrected. So it's a past salvation and a future salvation in that representation. <laughs> bunch of Asians there. Uh, okay, so first of all, they're praising him for his salvation. Second of all, they're uh, praising him for his splendor. It says, glory and honor. Glory and honor. Now, glory is the highest degree of honor and is only appropriated to the supreme being to whom alone the highest praise is due and who will not give his glory to another. Uh, Exodus thirty four fourteen says, for thou shalt worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Well, you would think if his name is Jealous, it certainly describes his characteristic, right? He is a jealous God. God does not like to share his glory with anyone else. I mean, I can see that, can't you? <laughs> okay, to the next one. Uh, they're also praising him for his strength. Represented in the next phrase, the power. He's got the power. He's got the strength. Now, to ascribe power along with glory and honor is a witness that this is a song of a redeemed people. It implies ability and or strength to do all things. Okay? So, these three great attributes of God should awaken its own response in the hearts of mankind. Salvation should awaken gratitude in man. Salvation should awaken gratitude in man. The splendor, glory and honor, it should awaken reverence in man. Reverence. Strength should awaken trust in man. So these three, gratitude, reverence, and trust, are the foundational elements of real praise. Gratitude. Reverence and trust. And that is a very good lesson to learn out of this section. 
you had no idea reading that verse there was all that in there, did it? Uh, what a great reflection of how we should be. Salvation, glory, and honor. Man, that's good right there. <laughs> okay, now let's go on to the next point. Um, which is, uh, let's see. All right, so we talked about the salvation of God in verse 1. All right, now verse 2 and 3, the severity of God. They're praising him for his severity. Now, that does sound kind of strange. Uh, Lord, thank you for being so severe. But listen, listen at the, <clears throat> excuse me, listen how the verse reads out, 2 and 3. Or, well, actually, let's see. For true and righteous are his judgments. Yeah, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Okay. All right. Now here, uh, William Barclay states that God alone is perfect in judgment for three reasons. Number one, he alone has the authority to see the innermost thoughts and desires of any man. Well, all men, really. Any man means one at a time, but all men, he can do it all at once. Uh, number two, he alone has the purity which can judge without prejudice. And then number three, he alone has the wisdom to find the right judgment and the power to apply that judgment. So why would those in heaven praise God for the severity of his judgment? Again, we asked that question, or I did. Maybe you did too. Now, John Phillips in his commentary, he says, and I quote, God has stayed his hand of justice for so long that it seems he does not care anymore. His severity once unleashed falls along the lines of truth and righteousness and falls with wrath and indignation upon all that is false and wrong. The praise is particularly focused on the judgment against the whore and the Babylonian system. Without it, there would have been no city. The city was the final materialization of that system. But now God has erased both the city and the system and heaven is glad, end quote. That, that's a pretty good explanation of it right there. I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> All right. Uh, T.S. Kepler, in his commentary, he said, and I quote, The moral law can no more be broken than the law of gravity. It can only be illustrated, end quote. All right. Uh, and the next phrase, which starts in verse 3, And again, they said, Alleluia. Now, the destruction of the harlot and Babylon as representing the great enemy of the true church is of such great importance that it will be necessary uh, to repeat their expressions of praise. Uh, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Uh, now here... This smoke is a witness and testament to the final destruction. An image very similar in description to the destruction of the cities of the plain in Genesis 19. Talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, 28, it says, And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld. And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Now, Joseph Sutcliffe, in talking about this, uh, he said, and I quote, What, and are the fires that burned the martyrs rekindled? 
What? Must the beast, the whore, and the false teacher now take their turn? The martyrs have escaped. Their feet stand on the sea of glass, the pavement which reflects the glory of the throne, praising God with harp and voice. But how will the beast escape? Like the Persian princes who threw Daniel to the lions, they must themselves go to the lions. End quote. That's a good point there. All right, uh, the next point, verse 4. They also praise him for the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. That verse starts out, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne. Now, it's interesting to note the order given here. The 24 elders and then the four beasts. These are creatures that we've mentioned before. Uh, but so far in the three passages previously, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, chapter 5, verses 8, and then in verse 14, we are given the order of the four beasts first and then the 24 elders. So what is the significance of the order being reversed now? And there is a reason. I'm telling you, it's just not written that way and then spun around just to make it interesting writing. There is a reason and a method behind it, and I will explain that right now. The four beasts are nearer to the throne than the elders are and are mentioned first in the other three passages as they offer praise first. The order of praise is from the center outward to the circumference. But once God's judgments are fulfilled, the praise moves back from the circumference towards the center. And this is reflected in what they say and what it means. <clears throat> uh, saying, in the next part of the phrase here, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Now these two simple words sum up the entire spirit of the praise and adoration, adoration of the saints. Amen represents the perfect receiving of every dispensation from God. The perfect receiving of every dispensation from God. Alleluia represents the perfect reciprocation, giving back, of all praise in every dispensation to God. Alleluia represents the perfect reciprocation, or like I said, the giving back, of all praise in every dispensation to God. So here we see it, uh, the perfect receiving, and then the perfect giving back. All right, let's look at the first one. Amen. This is the acceptance of another's will. Now, Christ, performing his Father's will perfectly, is called the true Amen. The true Amen. That's Revelation 3.14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Isaiah also refers to God as the God of truth which is another name for Amen. Isaiah 65, 16, that he who blessed, blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from my eyes. Thus man's truth comes from God's truth. That's the only truth we have <laughs> is God's truth. Uh, now, 
hear what J.S. Bartlett says about this word amen in his book, Plain Sermons by Contributors to the Tracts for the Times. And I quote, They who desire to say a full amen in prayer must thereby understand that they not only ask or appropriate to themselves all that the mouth of the interceder or of the petitioner desires, but far more than this, that there may be on all points agreement between their mind and the mind of God, that whether the prayer be granted or denied, they may equally subscribe with the heart and say amen and desire that all the mind of God, expressed or unexpressed, may be fulfilled in them. This is indeed to say amen. And, and basically, what he's trying to say there is when we say the phrase amen, we're thereby trying to put our hearts uh, and our minds in total agreement with God. Not just agreeing that what he says we believe is right, but that whether we believe it or not, what he says is right, is true, and is correct, no matter what we think. We still should say, amen. That's what that means, all right? Okay, so that's amen. Now let's look at hallelujah. Hallelujah is the perfect reciprocation, or the giving back, like I said, of all praise in every dispensation to God. <clears throat> now, this passage shows us that the word alleluia is a native word of the language of heaven. But also, David shows us that it can be learned and used on earth, too. In all the Psalms where the phrase, praise the Lord, is used, the Hebrew word is alleluia. J.S. Bartlett, again, says this in his book, Plain Sermons by Contributors to the Tracks for the Times. And I quote, It is when no cloud comes in between to obscure the light of God's countenance. It is when we read him in his full and overflowing mercy. It is when we kneel in lowly adoration at the altar and the Lord whom we seek comes to his temple. It is when we most feel as then, this God is our God forever and ever. That alleluia, unprompted and untaught, is wont to flow. Had we to define Alleluia as it regards God, we should say it is admiration of God, affection to Him, joy in Him. Had we to define it as regards man, we should call it a present bliss, the earnest of a bliss future and deeper still. End quote. Okay, so that brings us to the final point. Uh, they are praising him in verses 5 through 6 for the supremacy of God. The supremacy of God. All right, so the verse starts out, verse 5, And a voice came out of the throne. Now, who does this voice belong to? <laughs> is there any way I know how that is? Who does this voice belong to? Uh, first, the voice comes from out of the throne, indicating great authority not just around the throne, they come from out of the throne. Secondly, it does not seem likely that it is God because the command is to praise our God. Third, it doesn't seem that it would be Christ either unless he identifies himself with the redeemed church and speaks of God as his father and hers, 
Now, I do know Christ does speak of his father as his father. I do know that. But I'm talking about in relation here about praise our God. That's just not a phrase kind of fits to me. It's my opinion. But anyway, also further uh, to that, indicating verse 10, uh, this could not be Christ. As John bows down to worship this creature and is quickly reprimanded and told not to worship him as he is a fellow servant. So that in association and connection with this voice out of the throne would tell us it's not God and it couldn't be Christ either. Now, fourth, this would not be uh, the voice of one of the 24 elders as their position is given in Revelation 4 as round about the throne were four and 20 seats. And upon the seats, I saw four and 20 elders sitting in verse four. And then again, in verse 10, it says the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. So that would be a, their voice coming out of the throne. They're in front of the throne. So their location is around the throne. While we are told this voice comes out of the throne, indicating one who is much closer. Now, while we are not told specifically who this voice belongs to, we can narrow the possibility down based on the information given us in the Bible about the different characters in the vicinity of the throne to one of three distinct groups of characters immediately around the throne of God. Uh, two of them I know you've probably heard of before. One of them I bet you don't or haven't. Uh, the first would be the cherubim. Almost everybody's heard of that. Any, anybody that's gone through the story of Adam and Eve getting kicked out of Eden and hear about the cherubim garden with the flaming sword and all that, that's cherubim. Also, the, with the tabernacle, it's two cherubim over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's cherubim. Well, then there's also the seraphim. A seraphim, that's another rank of soldiers right around the throne. Now, there's a third group that not many people have knowledge of uh, based on their name, but when we get into the description of it, you've probably, if you're a student of prophecy and have been especially in the book of Ezekiel, you've probably heard mention of them. But their name, or rank of sol uh, soldiers, rank of angels, they're called the Ophanim. O-P-H-A-N-I-M. The Ophanim. All right? We'll talk about it when we get to it. Now let's talk about each one. Now, the difference in the cherubim and the seraphim, uh, based on the pictorial Bible dictionary from 1963, uh, basically says the cherubim is the Hebrew word cherub, K-E-R-U-B. Uh, it is of uncertain deriv deriv derivation. <laughs> in other words, they don't know where the word came from. Uh, it's a cherub or imaginary figure. Uh, or is the key there. A cherub is quite literally a real figure. Now, the first mention of a cherubim is uh, what well, we just mentioned it, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. So he, God, drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. All right, so that was the first mention of them. Now, later on, Exodus chapter 25, verses 18 through 22, God directs Moses to place two cherubim of beaten gold on the mercy seat above the ark where God would commune with Moses in the tabernacle. 
Then later, Genesis, uh, Genesis, Exodus chapter 26 and verse 1, the curtains of the tabernacle were embroidered with cherubim. Now, this is the curtains that are on the inside. Okay. Um, Psalms 18 pictures a storm with God riding upon a cherub in verse 10. And then in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel actually describes what the cherubim looks like. And it may be a lot different than what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, it's a strange creature. Now, again, I, I mentioned the fact, when we mention angels and things like that, people have this just dogmated view of flowing white robe, blonde hair, feminine, as in female. Uh, and that is totally wrong. That is exactly, other than white robes, uh, it's exactly opposite of, of what the Bible tells us about anything about angels. Now, first of all, every one of them that's named by name in the Bible is masculine. They're male. I don't know if they're actually male, but they're masculine. Second, <clears throat> The description, like when we get into these cherubim, the ophanim, and, and the seraphim, you're going to see, uh, man, th these are scary-looking creatures. These are not creatures that you want to see <laughs> uh, among us. Uh, what is that Alabama scene that's on there? Angels Among Us? Man, I'm telling you, you, you don't want to know that one of these things are around, okay? Uh, it, would, it would scare the sin out of you, that's for sure. All right, now looking at this, Ezekiel chapter one. If you want to flip over there, at least you can make some notes or, or mark it up as we go through it. I'm going to just kind of skim over it and tell you what, what we are looking at. All right, verse five describes four living creatures which had the likeness of a man. Verse six then goes on and says that each one had four faces and four wings. Verse seven says that their feet were straight and the soles were like a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished brass. So their feet basically were like calves' hooves, but they're made out of brass. Okay. okay. Now, I mean, so far, get the picture in your head. Okay, this is not anything what you would think of an angel looking like. Uh, uh, verse 8. They each had hands like a man's. Okay. I can see that. Verse 9, their wings, four, remember, they each had four wings. Their wings were joined together, which means that all four cherubs' wings touched so that each one was at the corner of a square that was outlined with their wings. Verse 9 also tells us their wings were so arranged that they did not have to turn but could fly straight forward and change direction quickly. Now, verse 10, each one of these creatures had four faces. They had the face of a man in the front, which represents the highest of God's creatures. Uh, the second face, they had the face of a lion on the right side. This represents the greatest of all the wild beasts. Third, they had the face of an ox on the left, which is the strongest of the tamed beasts. And then fourth, they had the face of an eagle 
on the rear, and that represents the greatest of the birds. So the highest, the greatest, and the strongest of everything is represented in these creatures. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Verse 11 further details uh, that uh, two of each cherub's wings touched another's while two wings covered their bodies. Okay? So in other words, remember they had four wings. All right? Just picture, first of all, that two of the wings cover their bodies. Okay? So that leaves two wings, one on the left, one on the right. So each one of those wings touches the wing of the cherub on either side of them. Okay? That, that's how they connect together, I guess you say. All right, verse 12 tells us that they were guided by the Spirit. Now, there's only one Spirit that fits that criteria, right? It'd be the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 13, Ezekiel describes their overall appearance like burning coals of fire, also like lamps. He also described this fire around them as going up and down the creatures like it is shimmering. Also that it was bright and that lightning, lightning was shooting out from it. <laughs> All right. So they have this outside uh, appearance of like a shimmering, glowing. It's like they're on fire. And it's basically, you just think that it's the holiness of God's presence just glimmering on them. And it is such of an immense power that there's lightning shooting out of it. Okay, not not the picture of an angel that we see in our head. Not even close. All right, verse 14 uh, describes that they moved like lightning. In other words, very fast. All right, creature from heaven, angel, uh, that's, I have no problem believing that at all. Verse 24 goes on and it says that the sound of their wings is likened to the noise of great waters or like the voice of God when he speaks or like the sound of a large army. We are also told that when the cherubim stood, they let down their wings. So I guess what that means is the two that they have touching each other, when they stand up, they, they put them down. Okay. I guess that's what it is. All right. Okay, so now we have a little bit of education on exactly what uh, a cherubim looks like. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the next rank of creature is the Ophanim. The Ophanim. Uh, we're in, we are, not we're, we are in the same chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 1. And if you look down at verse 15, it says there, Ezekiel tells us that there was a wheel beside each cherub. Now, the word wheel in the Hebrew is Ophan. And of course, that's where we get our word Ophanim. And it's an uh, it's from an unused root, meaning to revolve. In other words, it's a wheel that's spinning. Okay. Now, again, these wheels are called Ophanim, as in a separate angelic being. And we get that from verse 15, where it says that there was a wheel beside each cherub. It wasn't part of the cherub, it was beside of them. So it was just mentioned in connection with them as being beside. All right. Now, they are mentioned in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and the scroll that it mentions it is, is numbered uh, 
number four, the letter Q, and then the number 405. It's all together, 4Q405. And it mentions these Ophanim as a rank of angels. Also, the book of Enoch, uh, chapter 61 and verse 10, and chapter 71 and verse 7 describes them as a class of angels, like the cherubim and seraphim, who never sleep but guard the throne of God and identify them with the term thrones in the Bible. Thrones is a word that is used in the New Testament, and, and it does mention, uh, refer to ranks of angels. Uh, next, they are believed to be the same creatures that Daniel sees in chapter 7 and verse 9 of Daniel. And it says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. So th there, when it talks about the thrones cast down, I believe what it's talking about is actual kingdoms. But at the end, where it says his wheels as burning fire, is what it's talking about, these Ophanim here. Okay? Uh, verse 16 describes their color uh, like beryl, which some believe was yellow or gold in color, uh, but no one really knows for certain. Uh, all four Ophanim look identical. They look like a wheel inside of another wheel. Um, a good way to picture this in your mind it is not like if you're laying two wheels down on a table, one smaller inside of the other, that's, that's not the picture. Uh, if you stand them up, and basically you're looking at a wheel from the side, okay, from the side of the wheel. So in other words, it's it's going from top down to the bottom, and other from left to right, and you go back up to the top. And then the other wheel, you take that same form and turn it straight ahead so that you're, like if it's a tire, you're looking at the treads. So you've got one wheel that's from, you know, from top to, to left, to bottom to right, and then the other one's like from the top to the front to the bottom to the back, to, okay? So they're turned opposite of each other, one inside of the other, if you get my meaning there, okay? Uh, verse 17 tells us their intersecting wheels allowed them to move in any direction instantly without having to turn. So they just want to move, they moved. They didn't have to like turn. Verse 18 says that their rings were so high, in other words, the height of the wheel, uh, they were frightening, maybe reaching from earth to heaven in appearance. We are also told that each ring of the wheels were full of eyes all around it. Now, again, I can't stress enough. When you say angel and you put the picture in your head, I know you're not thinking anything like this. Uh, but yet again, this is a kind, a rank of angel. And it is a very high, honorable angel. It's right there around God's throne. Strange looking creature, I'm telling you. Verse 19 tells us that the wheels were somehow connected with the movement of the cherubim. In that wherever the cherubim went, the wheels stayed right with them. And then verse 20 explains the connection described in verse 19 as the spirit of the cherubim uh, was actually in the wheels. So, and I think that means the Holy Spirit was actually the cherubim and in the, in the wheels too. 
Okay. All right, that's two down, one more to go. Uh, the seraphim. Now, I got to admit, when you think of an angel uh, in the white robes and things of all that nature, most likely the seraphim is the closest form to that. It still is by and far not even close, okay? But the description just is very close, not very close. It, it's similar. I'll put it that way. But still, not what we imagine. Okay, seraphim. Uh, it is the Hebrew word seraph. And this word means to set on fire. Uh, to cause to burn or to kindle or to be burning a poisonous serpent. Well, that's strange to put all that together. Associated with a copper color. Now, in contrast to the cherubim and ophanim, very little description is given of the seraphim. We do not know a lot about them. There's a whole lot of speculation. Not a lot of fact except what is mentioned about them in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. And there, it only has two verses that give us very few details. But we'll go over what it says. All right, chapter 6 of Isaiah, verse 1 through 2. It tells us the position of these creatures is standing above the throne of God. They're above the throne of God. Each one of them has six wings different from the four wings of the cherubim. Now, of these six wings, two wings cover their face, two wings cover their feet, and then they flew with the other two. Um, it says that their uh, faces and feet are covered, uh, which, oh yeah, okay, with the wings, right. The wings covering their faces and feet symbolizes adoration. It's covering the face and the mouth and then worship with their feet and the bowing down. Okay, so the position of the wings is symbolic of uh, the praise portion of that. Uh, now, because Isaiah gives us the detail of a six-winged creature as the seraphim versus the cherubim having only four wings, we can deduce that the creatures described in Revelation 4 are no doubt seraphim. And what we mean uh, by that, in Revelation 4, verses 6 through 8, it says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like in a crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face of a man as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. All right. Now, from these verses, we can see that the seraphim have the combined identifying characteristics of the cherubim and the ophanim, but in a unique way. Each seraphim has a different face instead of all four like the cherubim. All four of them have eyes all over them like the ophanim. 
Also, this is the only group of all three ranks that are specifically mentioned as using their voices. The only ones. All this we see in songs about uh, angels singing, you'll never find that in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do you see an angel singing. You know why? Because it's not true. And it cannot be true. You know why? I'll give you the reason. Singing is an expression of the soul. Angels are created beings. They have no souls. They do not have a purpose or a reason for singing. They will say, or you'll hear them speak, but never singing. And I got that from J. Vernon McGee. I never knew that for a long time. I'll give him credit for pointing that out. Very unique. It not it strange what we know and think from what we read and just take people's word for granted? I mean, we do. I mean, we're all guilty of that. Like I said, when we get this picture of an angel in our head or uh, many podcasts ago, when we talked about the picture of Jesus, that uh, painting that a man made. And it's nothing like the truth. I mean, we just described three ranks of angels. None of them even have a inkling clue or close identical resemblance to what we think an angel looks like. <laughs> Nothing of the kind. Uh, okay, <clears throat> so let's go on with the next portion. Uh, saying, praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. So we're in verse 5 here. The second part of verse 5. Saying, praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Now the word praise here is in the present tense, which is a command to keep on praising God. It's not you just praise him one time and you're done. You just keep on praising. Now the phrase, all ye his servants, tells us that this is not a specific group, such as the tribulation saints, uh, but rather this is a call for every true servant of God to praise him. All of them, throw it in together. That's what that means there. Every, and everybody should. Everybody should praise God. Uh, even the angels who don't have a soul, they praise God. We with souls should be praising God, even more than the angels do. But I doubt we're even close to that level of praise. Now, this call to praise differs from the previous praises before in verses 1 and 3, which celebrated and praised God on account of his faithfulness and justice manifested in the punishment of a persecuting power that had long oppressed Christ's faithful servants. But here, according to what follows, is praise based on the glorious state of the church despite the punishment about to take place of its enemies. Now the phrase, ye that fear him, both small and great, <clears throat> is another descriptive phrase applying to the same group. Now the original Greek connects the two phrases without the use of the conjunction and. So the phrase reads, keep on praising our God, all his servants who fear him, small and great. That's where the and is omitted. Okay? All right, now James Burton Kaufman, in reflection on what is going on here, says in his book, Plain Sermons by Contributors to the Tracts for the Times, and I quote, Consider what God is, how infinitely above the highest angels, the only fountain of goodness and life and immortality, and whatsoever is blessed and glorious, either in heaven or in earth. Consider again what we are, mortal, sinful, unworthy creatures. 
does it not almost seem as if we might well be afraid to praise him? But Almighty God, by his infinite condescension in Holy Scripture, encourages us not to keep silence. He declares himself ready to accept our praise and thanksgiving as a sacrifice of a free will offering. Here in the text, we find his approbation yielded in a very remarkable manner to the duty and blessing of praising him, as it has been understood and practiced from the beginning by all saints. A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him both small and great. His servants only are privileged to praise him. That is, as we should call them, his slaves, those who have been who have given themselves up to him entirely, who try to have no will but his, who give up what else would please them best when they understand it to be displeasing to him and take joyfully affliction, labor, self-denial when he lays it upon them and would prepare them thereby for his heavenly kingdom. Nor let any one Christian draw back in indolence or timidity as if he, for one, had no part in this merciful invitation. Observe, uh, uh, yeah, observe with what encouraging words he concludes it. Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Fearing God is, a, is the great thing, and they who have that in their hearts, how unequal soever in other respects, may come here with all saints and unite in praising him. In this place, if nowhere else, all ranks and degrees are equal, end quote. That's a great statement on not only that we should praise, but why we should praise, when we should praise, how we should praise, and who should praise. That was a good statement there, Mr. Coffin. Agreed wholeheartedly. <clears throat> All right, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude... Now it says there, as it were the voice. Now note the singular reference to what John heard. As it were the voice, not voice says. Now first of all, let's look at what John did not hear. He did not hear a voice. He heard as it were. So it's not a singular voice. There's actually many different voices speaking different things. No, no, no. It's many voices speaking. But what he also didn't hear was many different voices speaking different things. It, it, it's like being in like a um, a big gymnasium before the game or uh, in a big concert hall or think when people are talking before things start. Blah, 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 it's just this hubbub. That's not what he heard at all. Okay. Now, what John did hear. He did hear many voices speaking together in such unison that it sounded like a single voice. That's what he heard, like a single voice. Now I've got to hurry because I'm running out of time here trying to get this done. Um, the next phrase, of a great multitude. Now, who is this great multitude? First, notice what they are saying at the end of the verse. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This is a triumphant shout of praise back to God for who he is and what he is. Now, second, notice why they are praising God at this time. This is in response to what the seraphim had said 
in verse 5. Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Third, notice who is in this group. This group is categorized as those who serve him with fear, both small and great. That would mean one of those would be the raptured church, right before the tribulation period begins. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. I don't have time to read it, but that's what it is. I'm giving you the reference so you can look it up and read it yourself, okay? First group is the rapture church. The second group is the Old Testament saints. That's talked about in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Daniel 12, 1 through 2. The third group are the martyred tribulation saints. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Now note the phrasing and words used in this passage. Um, and, and I'm referring to Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, the souls of them that were beheaded. It references the, the identity of the martyred tribulation saints. Now, the use of a semicolon, that's the little dot at the top and the comma in the bottom, okay? The use of the semicolon after this phrase indicates a passage of time uh, or other, uh, or rather, events of a later date. And then it says, and they lived and reigned. Now, they identifies the martyred tribulation saints. Lived and reigned tells us that their bodies must be raptured by this point for them to live and reign, right? Okay, now, so based on this uh, scripture, excuse me, we can see that the martyred tribulation saints will be resurrected to reign with him during the millennial reign. Uh, next point. And as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings, thunderings, Thunderings. Missed that one. Uh, here John is describing what the volume of the voices sounded like when in unison. In comparison, note what the voice, the noise of a regular multitude, 300 people can do. In Judges chapter 7, verses 16 through 22. And what that's talking about there is when Gideon had his 300 men and they didn't attack with swords and things. They had trumpets and lanterns that were covered. When they broke the cover of the lanterns, they blew the trumpets and it was such a loud noise that the enemy uh, panicked and basically killed each other. Um, okay, I, man, I've got so many other notes, but I'm just going to have to stop. I don't have time to get through this. I may just add like a little few minutes on to like another podcast just to finish it. And, and that way we cover the whole thing. I don't want to leave anything out. I don't want you to miss anything. Okay. So we'll do that. I'll end this podcast right here and then just kind of pick it up on the next one. Okay. So hopefully you'll join me on that one and we put it all together. Okay. God bless you. And thank you for listening.